0: Well, good morning again, church. Um, I did want to announce, if you're fairly new to our church, if you're a first-time guest even this morning, right after church today, we're going to have pizza with the pastors, and that's just a time uh, to, get our, to get to know our pastors and elders a little bit better. And so uh, if you'd like to join us, we'll have some pizza there. Uh, we asked you guys to sign up, but even if you didn't sign up, we'd love to have you. I'm sure we'll have plenty of pizza, and so uh, we just want to invite you to that after Um, our time together. So let me begin in prayer as we transition to the worship in the word. Uh, Father, we are so grateful to just worship you. Uh, We are so grateful, Lord, to be reminded of why we come to worship, the many benefits we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Father, as we continue our worship in the word this morning, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds for the truths therein. We pray your word would be like a seed that's planted And that would bear fruit unto righteousness. Father, what we know not this morning, teach us. What we have not, we pray that you would give us and who we are not in Christ. We ask that you would make us and we ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was a well-known pastor during the 1800s and Spurgeon uh, one day told a story about his grandfather who was preaching a sermon as he walked into the room a little bit late and Spurgeon's grandfather, as he saw Spurgeon walk in, he said this about his grandson. He said, He may be able to preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. What Spurgeon's grandfather was saying is that the power of the gospel is not found in the messenger who declares it, but the power of the gospel is found in the message that is declared. Concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ who justifies guilty sinners by grace through faith in Jesus and that gospel, the only true gospel, is there's no greater gospel that man can preach than that. This morning, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the letter of Galatians chapter 2. We're continuing in our study in verses 11 to 21 together as we continue to consider how Paul defended that one true gospel. You know, as you make your way there in your Bibles, we're reminded that not only did Paul need to defend the true gospel of Jesus Christ in his day against those who might seek to add or take away from the finished work of Christ on the cross as a means of salvation— but the need to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ is here even today. And so as we walk through our text together, we're going to consider how we are invited to stand for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the same way Paul stood for the gospel of Jesus Christ in his day. And so as we walk through our text, we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see Paul confront um, a fellow apostle, and then he's also going to clarify the truth of the gospel. And so, as we consider that together, would you stand in honor of the reading of the word, Galatians chapter 2, picking up in verse 11 and following. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is justified by the works of the law, or knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if... While we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again these things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ has died in vain. The word of the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God together this morning. This morning, we're going to consider how Paul stood for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one true gospel, and then we're also going to talk about how we are invited to do the same in our day and age. We're going to see two things, as I've said already. We're going to consider in verses 11 to 14, Paul's confrontation of a fellow apostle. and Then we're going to talk about in verses 15 to 21, Paul's clarification of the one true Gospel. We begin in verses 11 to 14 and consider Paul's confrontation of a fellow apostle, Cephas, or or Peter. It's quite the tense meeting that we get to read about, beginning in verse 11, and we're going to see that Paul confronts Peter uh, boldly, specifically, and publicly. In verse 11, he begins by confronting Peter boldly. It says, verse 11, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Now, before we go into more details about why this meeting is so tense and why Paul confronts a fellow apostle, the apostle Peter, first let's consider the context. This happened when Peter had come to Antioch. It's interesting to note, as we've been studying Galatians, that Paul records two other meetings that he's had with Peter throughout his life in his ministry. He recorded the first one back in chapter 1, and we get the details of it back in verses 17 to 18. Paul says that his first meeting took place as he's defending the true gospel with Peter, uh, not immediately after he was converted, but three years after he was converted. Paul, after being converted on the road to Damascus, spent three years in Arabia, and not until then did he finally meet with Peter, the apostle Peter. And the reason he said that, the reason he said I didn't immediately meet with Peter is because he wanted to defend not just his authority as an apostle but the message that he preached that it was a direct revelation from God himself. That Paul didn't receive the message from Peter or any of the apostles. He received the gospel message from Jesus Christ himself. So back in chapter 1, verses 17 to 18, Paul's argument was this. He said, I only spent 15 days with him three three years after my conversion. And so he described his first meeting with Peter. In the first 10 verses of chapter 2, where we were last in our study, Paul described the second meeting with Peter. It took place 14 years later. Could be either 14 years after his conversion or 14 years after the initial meeting. Nevertheless, it took place 14 years later and we know that Paul was moved by the Holy Spirit to go to meet with um, Peter and the others in Jerusalem. And the reason for that was because as we saw back in the first 10 verses, Paul's gospel was going to be endorsed by the Apostles. That the gospel that Peter preached, and James, the brother of Jesus, and John preached as leaders in the Jerusalem church, was the same gospel that Peter preached. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That one is justified, declared righteous, apart from human work or effort, and all through the finished work of Christ on the cross, by grace through faith have you been saved. Now, Paul describes a third meaning in our text, and it says, when Peter came to Antioch. He says um, in verse 11, Now when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. In other words, Paul says, I confronted him boldly. This is a Ephes- fellow apostle of his, and he stands up against Peter boldly. And he tells us the reason why. Because he was to be blamed. So that's simply saying, Peter was in the wrong. The apostle Peter was in the wrong. This might encourage some of us if an apostle is wrong in this situation, how much more us as we find ourselves failing, but thankful for the grace of God that covers us and encourages us to move forward. And Peter was in the wrong. He was condemned as guilty, and we're going to see the, the the reason why in a moment because he flip-flopped in his attitude and action towards the Gentile believers in Antioch. Um, John Stott describes the scene this way. This is without a doubt one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament. Here are two leading apostles of Jesus Christ face-to-face in complete and open conflict. And the reason Paul is confronting Peter is because he is in the wrong. And so first we see that Paul confronted Peter boldly. He confronted him to his face. He didn't pass him a note, He didn't send him a letter. He's with him in Antioch. He confronted him to his face. Secondly, we see in the text that Paul confronted Peter specifically. In verses 12 to 13, we understand the specifics of why Peter was in the wrong. It says in verse 12, For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Those who were of the circumcision were those who said to be saved. Faith in Jesus is important, but it's not enough. If you're going to be a Gentile and you're going to be genuinely saved, you also have to be circumcised. You also have to walk in observance of the Mosaic law. You have to observe certain dietary restrictions and certain days. And so what they were saying is Jesus plus. Yes, Jesus is important, but he's not enough. And Peter, when he first came to Antioch, he fellowshiped with the Gentile believers. He sat down with them and had a meal with them and ate their food together with them. And he, I'm sure as he embraced these, these fellow believers, he told them about his walk with Jesus over the three years in which he was on the earth and how Jesus had called him and all the different ways that God had worked in his Life, And so, we learn that at first, he sat down and he ate with them and had a good time with them. The first question I want us to consider, why is it that Peter felt he could sit down with these Gentile believers and eat with them and, and fellowship with them? After all, if you were raised Jewish, you learned, in accordance with the law, that to simply have fellowship with a Gentile was to become unclean. To walk into their house was to be unclean. To sit down and eat their food was to be unclean because they were like dogs. That's how they referred to them. They were unclean animals and to even fellowship with them would be to corrupt yourself. I want to bring you to Acts chapter 10 that really adds context to why Paul felt comfortable with the ability to do this. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 10, Uh, And if I could set the scene for you, God is preparing Peter to evangelize Cornelius, to share the gospel with a, a Gentile man. And in preparing him for that, to enter his house and to sit down with him, he gives him this vision as he's praying, and it says this, then he became very hungry, speaking of Peter, and wanted to eat. And while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Acts chapter 10, verse 10. And saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals on the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord. In other words, Peter said, I'm not going to fall for that one. I'm not eating any of these unclean animals, for I have not eaten anything common. Or he's talking about is unholy or unclean. And a voice came to him again and said to him a second time, "What God has cleansed, you must not call common." In other words, God can even make a Gentile kosher. The text goes on in verse 28, as Peter is speaking to the household of Cornelius, he says, then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. And so to make you unclean, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. This is good news for any of the Gentiles in the room here today we're reminded why Paul declared in Romans chapter 116, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe for the Jew first. And here's the good news for the Gentiles and also for the Greeks and also for the Gentiles. The same way that the Jew is justified by grace through faith is the same way the Gentile is justified by grace through faith in Jesus as one's Savior and as one's Lord. Did Peter, in the book of Acts, not face some kind of opposition? He certainly did. Let me jump over to Acts chapter 11. In the first three verses, it says this, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, who are these folks? These are the folks who taught that in order to be saved, you also had to be circumcised. They contended with him. They confronted him, saying, You went into the uncircumcised men and ate with them? That is completely. Not right. Verse 4, but Peter explained to them in order from the beginning. And then verse 17, here's the conclusion. He said this, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, because the Holy Spirit was given to Cornelius in his household, if he gave us the same gift that he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Peter says, in the end, I'm not here to please you who are men of the circumcision, who required circumcision for salvation, I'm not going to stand opposed to God. And so Peter, when he comes to visit the church in Antioch, he goes and he fellowships with these believers. Why? Because he has the freedom from the law and he can sit down with these converted Gentiles and have a meal with them. He can sit down and declare that they are brothers and sisters in Christ, that just as he was justified by grace through faith, so they have been justified by grace through faith. But then something happened. After he sits down with them, verse 12, Paul confronted them because it says he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself. Why? It says, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Earlier in Acts, he says, whoa, 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 I'm not going to stand opposed to God, but now as these men of the circumcision come who require more than faith in Jesus to be saved, putting that on the Gentile Christians, he gives in and compromises because of fear. What kind of fear would possess an apostle like Peter to do something like that? Possibly fear of persecution and violence. I mean, these, these individuals who were pushing this false doctrine, the men of circumcision, they not only uh, taught the false doctrine, but they w- w- were willing to threaten you as well. Or possibly the fear of losing influence among others, perhaps in the Jerusalem church as he ministered there, or even among others. We don't know exactly, but the reason Peter gave in was because of fear. And so Paul confronted him. He was in the wrong Not only that, it tells us because Peter was such a man of influence. Not only did he, by his actions and attitude, contradict the doctrine that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus, but he led others astray as well. Read verse 13 with me. It says, and the rest of the Jews who played the hypocrite. So not just Paul when he's with others as these men of circumcision come. They stopped eating with the Gentiles and having fellowship with them. It says, so that even Barnabas was carried away with hypocrisy. I hope you can hear the concern and the disappointment in Paul's voice here. I mean, Barnabas is his partner in ministry, his colleague. who During that first missionary journey, they traveled so many places. And he says even Barnabas was led astray because of their influence. And so Paul confronts Peter specifically. So first, he, he confronted him boldly, specifically. Thirdly, he confronted him publicly. There's a time to confront someone privately. There's a time to confront someone publicly. In this case, because of his influence, because of the manner in which his attitude and actions toward these Gentile believers was contradicting contradicting the doctrine of justification by faith, apart from human effort, Paul needed to confront Peter publicly. Verse 14 goes on to say, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth, what we're reminded of is the gospel is is like a, a straight path. And as we walk that straight path, if ever we should wander from justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, what we are ultimately doing is we are getting off of the straight path. And what Paul, Peter, Paul is telling Peter here is, you have not been living in light of the truth that you believe. If you truly believed one is justified by faith alone, then you would not have any problem fellowshipping with these Gentile believers, even in the presence of these Judaizers. Verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you... Being a Jew before them all, if you being a Jew live in manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? Paul says, why are you being a hypocrite? You feel the freedom to live as a Gentile, to eat the food that they eat. You're no longer under the, the, the law in, 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 and, and you're not going to corrupt yourself by eating those things, but how can you force The Gentile now to live as a Jew, be circumcised, uh, observe the the dietary restrictions and other things as well, Paul confronts Peter's hypocrisy. And what we get to see really in this text are are three things he, he confronts, boldly and specifically and publicly. He confronts his hypocrisy, he confronts his fear that caused him to want to please man over God in light of these things. And he confronted the legalism of, of requiring more than faith in Jesus for salvation. This morning, we're reminded that Paul stood for the truth of the gospel, even willing to confront a fellow apostle, Peter, in order to do that. The gospel that so changed and transformed Paul's life was the gospel that he preached and proclaimed and didn't want anyone to deviate from it, and was even willing to confront a fellow apostle because of that. This morning, we're invited to stand for the gospel as we follow the example of Paul. And in order to stand for the gospel, we're going to talk about three things in relationship to our lives. Number one, standing for the truth of the gospel requires boldness, standing for the truth of the gospel requires Boldness. I'd like to encourage us to boldly confront three things in our own lives, in our own hearts. Fear, hypocrisy, and legalism. First, this morning we are invited to boldly confront fear. If ever we should find ourselves fearing man more than fearing God, we should beware of that. You know, you might think to yourself, I am beyond this. But if the apostle Peter wasn't beyond it, what makes you think that you and I are beyond it? And so this morning, we're invited to, to fear God over man. I got to go back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. That just reminds us of Paul who, who desired to fear God over man. It says, for, I do, for do I now persuade man or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of God. Christ. This morning would invite us to consider, are we seeking to please men over God in any way? And let us confront our hearts boldly. Secondly, let us boldly confront hypocrisy in our lives and our hearts. You know, there's a scripture in Matthew 7, judge not lest you also be judged. And the reason for that statement is because before you judge, you need to check your eye if there is a plank in your eye as you call out the sin in the eye of another. And so it's that reminder, boldly confront any hypocrisy in your heart. Reminds me of Psalm 139, 23 to 24, which is a prayer that we can pray. Search me, O oh God, and, and know my heart. Lord, now you know everything, but I want to invite you to, to just take a look in my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and my concerns and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of the everlasting. Lead me back on the path of righteousness. And so boldly confront fear in our hearts. Boldly confront Hypocrisy and thirdly, boldly confront legalism. If ever you should find yourself seeking to add anything or take away anything from the finished work of Christ on the cross as a means of salvation, check your heart. This morning we're reminded there's nothing we can say, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, the unmerited favor of God. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are justified by faith apart from human effort. And so first, we're reminded standing for the truth requires boldness. Secondly, standing for the truth requires discernment. I often like to define discernment as not simply being able to tell the difference between right and wrong, but being able to tell the difference between right and almost right. There were others who were led astray by the influence of Peter. Barnabas was one of them. And so if we're going to have discernment, we need to be able to tell the difference between right and almost right. How do you tell the difference between right and almost right by getting to know the truth? If you're going to be able to spot a counterfeit, you've got to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the truth of the gospel is, although we as sinners owe God a debt that we could never repay, God who loved us so much, to, in order to restore his relationship with us, he sent Jesus to die on a cross. He was buried. He died in our place, was buried the third day, rose again in newness of life, and offered salvation as a gift to anyone who would receive it, anyone who adds or takes away from the finished work of Christ on the cross, who says, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus circumcision, Dietary restrictions, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus membership as a means of salvation is adding to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Exercise. Discernment, And so standing for the truth requires discernment, familiar yourself, familiarize yourself with the truth, beware of small compromises that can present themselves, and surround yourself with the right godly influences as you make the most out of your influence. And then thirdly, standing for the truth requires discretion. For Paul, he confronted Peter publicly. There's a time to confront publicly in this case, and there's a time to To confront privately exercise discretion by getting to know God's Word Matthew 18 verses 15 to 20 is a a good example of what steps to follow as we consider what is the right way to confront one another when we're found in sin or receive correction when we might be found in sin and so we began and we consider how Paul stood for the truth of the gospel he confronted a fellow Apostle secondly he clarified the true gospel. He clarified the true gospel. You know, as we continue in our text, what Paul is wanting to convince Peter of is that his attitudes and actions are a contradiction to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He wants Peter to see that by his attitudes and actions towards these Gentile believers in fellowshipping with them and then choosing not to, he's contradicting what they both believe, that one is justified by grace through faith. And so, in order to do that, Paul clarifies the gospel, and this is so good as we read about it, defined in verses 15 to 16, and then defended in verses 17 to 21. So, Paul defines the gospel. If you were thinking, okay, I need a good definition of what the good news is. Here's a great definition. Beginning in verse 15, he says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Let me break that down for you. The good news of the gospel is, is that guilty sinners can be justified not by works of the law. That's the first part of the gospel. The second part of the gospel is that guilty sinners can be justified by faith, by trusting in Jesus. Paul begins as we unpack that definition in verse 15 and says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, we know this and we believe this. Paul says, you and me alike, Peter. And Barnabas and all the others who know the true gospel of Jesus Christ. You are not justified by works of the law and your obedience to the law. You are justified by faith in Jesus alone. And so he says, even us who were born Jews, who were not born Gentile sinners. You know what Paul is saying there? He's saying, we who were born Jews, the manner in which we are put into a right standing with God is not by our obedience to the law the manner which we, even Jews who have all of the privileges and all the promises of the covenant, we cannot earn our salvation. We must be made right by faith in Jesus. Paul says, uh, me along with you, Peter, we... Are not, we were not born Gentile sinners. In other words, we weren't born without the law and therefore lived in disobedience to it because we didn't know what it is. But even us as Jews were justified by grace through faith and so are the Gentiles as well. What's the good news? Paul goes on to say in verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law First, I want to remind you this, this is the first part of the good news, a man, you or I, or a woman cannot be justified by the works of the law, cannot be justified by our good deeds. We're reminded before we even get into our, uh, going deeper into the meaning of this, that man's greatest need is to be justified before a holy God. Before we can talk about the good news, we first have to talk about the bad news. And the bad news of it is this. We were born into this world with hearts in rebellion against a holy God. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us miss the mark. Some of us may do a better job than others, but all of us fall short, and there's consequences for that. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life. There are some who think, you know, even though my sin separates me from a holy God, I believe that I can work my way into God's favor. Despite all of my mistakes, despite all of my sins, I am going to, you know, Attend church. I'm going to uh, help out those in need. And so I'm going to help others. But we're reminded in Isaiah 64 6, but we are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And so we're reminded that we cannot ever earn salvation. And so this is why this is good news that we are not justified by the works of the law, by our obedience to the law. Why? Because if you try it that way, you'll fail every time. If you have tried and tried and tried to earn the favor of God in order to get into heaven, not ever knowing if you're ever good enough, here's the good news this morning. You don't have to keep trying. All you got to do is trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. The good news of the gospel is it's not about doing this or doing that or obeying a long list of rules. It's trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ who declares it is finished on the cross. It's already been done for you. And so this is good news for us that we need to remind ourselves of as believers that there's nothing we can do to earn the favor of God. It's already been provided for us. And our greatest need is justification Someone once said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness to be justified, declared righteous before God, God sent us a savior. The term justified is a legal term. It's used in the court of law. The opposite of justified is condemned. To be justified means to be declared innocent, to be declared to be in a right standing. Condemnation means that you are guilty and you stand condemned. We're reminded that because of our sin, we stand condemned before a holy, righteous God. But because of what Christ has done on the cross, that is how we are made right before a holy God and justified. You know, when you trust in Jesus as your savior and lord, apart from human effort, the, when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin past, present or future. He sees the he sees the righteousness of Christ because of what he's accomplished on that cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he took our place. He lived a perfect life and transfers to our account his righteousness. And we transfer to his account our sin, and he pays it in full. And the father takes his gavel and hits it and says, you are declared righteous. There's nothing more that you need to do. There's nothing more that you can do. You have been justified, declared righteous, declared to be in a right standing before a holy God. This doctrine of justification is something we need to hold on to because it reminds us of the good news that we cannot earn our salvation, but Christ has paid for it on our behalf. And so Paul says in um, verse, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, by, by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified By faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Um, If you take time to unpack that verse, he repeats himself three times. This is what we know. This is what we believe. This is what we stand by. You are not justified by the works of the law. You are justified by faith in Jesus. We know it. Paul turns to Peter and says, we believe it. And we stand by it. He concludes and says, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. No man or woman can be declared to be in a right standing before a holy God. You say, how is it possible for us to be justified? 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, speaking of the Father, made him, speaking of the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And therefore, we have been Justified. Rest in that reminder. Know that you don't have to work and do more and more to earn the favor of God. You've already got it. And that serves as a motivation to serve the Lord and honor Him in all things. And so, verses 15. To 16 we get to see the definition of the gospel verses 17 to 21 we hear the defense of the gospel Paul you know when he writes you hear in his letters he'll often bring up objections that some of his readers might have on their minds he says in verse 17 a familiar objection that might be asked but if while we seek to be justified by Christ we ourselves are also found sinners is Christ therefore a minister of sin so Paul says this, well, if you're going to say that um, to be saved, is you're justified not by the works of the law, but you're justified by faith, what if you're still a sinner after you've been justified? Is there anyone here who has trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, and you still sin? Yeah, all of us this morning. If we don't, the Bible calls us a liar <laughs> in First John 1, 8, it says this, if you say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. So we do continue to sin. So somebody might ask, well, if you're justified by faith and apart from works, doesn't that encourage you to continue to sin? After all, the more you sin, the more grace you'll receive. If you're justified by faith, doesn't that mean that if you continue to sin that Jesus is actually enabling you to sin? And he becomes uh, an enabler of sin. Paul says in the most emphatic way possible, uh, in the negative possible, he says, May it never be. Meganoita. It's a double negative. May it never be. God forbid that you would ever think something like that. And so people often argue that. Romans chapter 6, Paul covers the same thing. Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. Meganoita. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? If you have trusted in Jesus and you have been justified by faith in him, It doesn't just impact your position before him. It'll impact your life after you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord as well. And it impacts your process of sanctification. So you're justified, and then you are being sanctified. And so Paul continues his argument. He says, for if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Paul is saying here, you know, if I rebuild this legalistic system in which you earn the favor of God by your obedience to the law because I always fall short and I always miss the mark. In the end, if I rebuild what I already tore down, I'm still a sinner. And so Paul says, I'm not going to rebuild that. And so he's continuing his argument. He says, verse 19, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Paul says, he, for I through the law died to the law. When you Take a look at the law. The law is good in the sense that it reveals the righteousness of God. If you take a look at the law of God, you will see how it reveals sin. The only challenge is the law cannot remove it. It's like a mirror that you see your imperfections, but you can't correct it. And so the law, what it will lead you to is to the end of yourself. And when you realize that you cannot earn the favor of God, instead of Turning to the law, you turn to Christ. And when you turn to Christ and live for him, that's the end of the law. And so that's what Paul is saying here. He says, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Because in order to live to God, you first have to die to the law. You have to admit there's nothing I can do to earn the favor of God, especially as a means of salvation. I'm justified by faith alone. And then Paul says this in verse twenty which is a verse that if you haven't memorized, this is one that you should call to memory as you consider the context in which it's in. For I have been crucified with Christ. Paul declares his identity. He has been united with Christ, having been justified by faith with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. When you're united with Christ in his death, your old self has died and it is no longer alive. You've died to your old sin nature. In other words, prior to receiving Christ into your life, when sin called, you obeyed. You were a slave of your master. But now, even though that sin nature may still be there, it has no power over you. There is a new master, and his name is Jesus. And so when sin call, comes calling, you say, I don't have to obey you no more. I follow a new master. His name is Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Paul says, I have died. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How does Christ live in you? How do you live the Christian life? In the same way you were justified by faith, you are sanctified by faith as well as the Holy Spirit lives in you. As you abide in Christ, as John 15 says, then you don't just produce some fruit, you become you produce much fruit. For I've been crucified with Christ. This is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, that means the life I now live in this current body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If after I'm justified by faith, I continue to sin, does that mean that Jesus endorses or enables my sin? Absolutely not, because I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Consider those last two statements, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is when the gospel will literally change your life. Not just when you consider the fact that Jesus died in order to forgive sinners and justify them before a holy, righteous God, but he died for you. That he loves you. And when you realize what Christ did on your behalf, the gospel completely changes and transforms you forever. And it continues to change and transform the way you continue to live by grace through faith in Jesus. You know, after we get saved, sometimes we'll say, you know, um, now that I'm saved, now that I'm justified by faith, now I'm going to serve the Lord in my own strength. We don't always put it that way, but we say, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. Trying to break this habit. I'm trying to live for the Lord, but I just can't do it. The same way that you were justified is the same way that you will be sanctified by your faith in Jesus. It's not about producing good deeds in your own power, it's about abiding in Christ. Let me read to you John chapter 15 because it really um, helps us in this text. John 15. John fifteen verse one says this Jesus says, "I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bear fruit he prunes that he may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I spoke, have spoken to you, abide in me, and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing. That's all that Galatians 2.20 is saying. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. He's abiding in me. I'm just a branch connected to the vine and that is how I produce fruit. How does a vine produce, how does a branch produce fruit? It just simply remains connected. That's all you and I have to do. Remain connected in his word. Remain connected in prayer. Remain connected in the fellowship of his people. And as you remain connected, you then are able to produce much fruit. Then Paul wraps it up in verse 21 in his defense of the one true gospel. And he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. Paul says, I'm not going to set apart side the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to stand for the truth. Why? Because if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ has died in vain. If you can earn your path to heaven, if you can earn your way into God's favor and a right standing with him, what's the point of Christ's death on the cross? You know, in the end, if, if you say, "Well, I, I work as hard as I can," and then Jesus covers the rest. So basically we're saying the, the death of Christ is insufficient. It can only cover so much of your sin. In the end, what's at stake is whether or not Jesus Christ and his death on the cross is sufficient. That have we been justified by the law, or have we, by the works of the law, or have we been justified by faith in Jesus Christ our Savior? and our Lord. This morning we get to see the gospel clarified. This is the good news that you can hear and that you can share with others. We are not justified as guilty sinners by works of the law. We are justified by faith in Jesus in, as a result of his finished work on the cross. Salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and that is what we are invited to stand in. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've been trying your whole life to earn the favor of God. You're hoping that when you meet God someday that you'll have done enough good in order to outweigh your bad. But the Bible says all have sinned. All have fallen short. The wages of sin is death and eternity without God and his people forever. The invitation is to admit your desperate need for Jesus who came from heaven to earth, died on a cross, paid your debt, and offer salvation as a gift to you. And then today to confess Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And to share that with as many people as possible. You know, uh, as I close this morning, I always think of, of a story about a, a guy who was hiking one time. And as he was hiking uh, he ended up falling off of the cliff. And as he falls off the cliff, he, he holds on to a branch. And as he's holding onto this branch, he, he cries out for help, help, help. No one comes for five minutes, 10 minutes. He's starting to lose in, any strength. And he says, help, somebody help me. And he hears a voice from heaven cry out, don't worry, my son, I'm here to help you. And he says, who are you? And he says, God. And he says, what do you want me to do? And God says, let go. Of the branch. And then he asks, cries out again, Is there anyone else out (laughs) there? This morning there are some who hold on to the branch of your own works according to the law, trying to earn your salvation. And Jesus says, Let go of the branch and cling to Christ and receive salvation for your souls. Don't bring anyone under the burden of trying to earn their path to salvation or the favor of God. Let go and receive Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. Can we pray? Father, we are grateful for our time this morning as we get to worship in your word. uh, We pray, Lord, that we would be reminded of the truth of the gospel, that we are justified, declared righteous, not by works of the law, but by our faith in Jesus, in his finished work on the cross. Father, if there's someone here today who needs to let go of trying to earn their way Into a right standing with God, earn their way into heaven. I pray, Lord, that you would loosen their grip and soften their heart. That this morning they would be able to turn to you and say, Jesus, I need you. I admit that I stand condemned. I know that the wages of sin, my sin, is death and eternity without God and his people forever. But I also believe that that's why God sent Jesus to come to a cross to die on my behalf. I make Jesus my Savior and my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Thank you, Father, that I have been justified, declared righteous by grace through faith in Jesus. Father, we pray that these truths would ring true in our heart and that you would give us the opportunity to share it with others as we have opportunity to stand for the truth of the gospel. We pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.